if you had to have your uh, like arena named after any of these different brands, which one do you think would be most likely to die off? FTX, Crypto.com, Little Caesars. <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. It's the basics that are so difficult. For me, yeah. <laughs> How you doing? I'm good, man. How about you? I am solid. I'm doing solid. We're heading into the last month of the year of 20 deuce deuce. <laughs> I don't think he gets. <laughs> What's wrong with 20 deuce deuce? I don't know, man. It sounds like someone really has to use the restroom. We better <laughs> get right. going. <laughs> let me start. Let me add some professionalism to this podcast. Special thanks to the new premium subscribers that joined us uh, last week with our promo. That's awesome. We had so much fun on the hundredth episode and uh we appreciate you joining the the team here what are we calling them do we have like a special nickname doogles we should come i was thinking i was thinking dooglers but i think that uh, (laughs) that might be too doogle centric so yeah it sounds good to me perfect doogles let's do a quiz right i I have two for you today oh okay we haven't done a quiz in a while right it has been a while all right so if you think of fast food restaurants in this country you're gonna be pretty good at this but what do you think is the most common, not necessarily the most popular in terms of locations? So what fast food chain has the most locations in the United States? Yes. I'm going to go Subway. Subway, right? 21,000-ish. Subway, they put in the sandwiches category. And do you have any idea what other sandwich chains would be most popular? The second most popular sandwich chain by location Ooh. number in this country. Quiznos? No, nah, Quiznos is, is like nearly dead. It's Arby's, man. Isn't that crazy? So oh, hold, on, hold, on, hold on, hold on, hold on. So like is, is McDonald's a no, no. sandwich? So how is Arby's? Because they, they got the meats? They have the meats. Don't you know? I don't understand that. Okay. Well, Any we'll other guesses we'll on, on popular sandwich joints? Well, now I don't know what a sandwich joint is. Nah, the rest what about, what about Nathan's Famous Hot Dogs? Is that a sandwich joint? <laughs> um, Subway, 21,000 locations. Arby, 3,500 locations. Jimmy John's, 2,600 locations. Jersey Whoa. Mike's, 2,000 locations. I sure. never okay. would have guessed Jersey Mike's and, uh, and, and Jimmy John's. Yeah, I mean, Whoa. even like a Firehouse Subs has 1,000 locations. That's number five, according wow. to this, which is crazy. So wow. then if we zoom back out and talk all restaurants... What are we thinking is the next most common restaurant in America? I mean, I'd probably go Mickey Dizzles. It's the right guess, but they only have 13,500. Starbucks is now at 15,500. Okay, hold on. <laughs> You're mad about Starbucks. Hold on. hold on. How are we defining these categories? Like if I, if I came <laughs> if I came uh, up to my family, right? Friday <laughs> night, we had a long week and I was like, "You know what? Let's go hit a, a restaurant." And I took them to Starbucks. Listen, your, your family needs to evolve, man. All right. Starbucks, Starbucks, they have so much food now. But yeah, let's call this. Sorry, I should have done a better job of that. Let's call it fast food chains and fast coffee joints. 
because they even have Dunkin' Donuts on here. Okay, all right. This is this is this is too expansive. Too expansive. All right, and I'm a man Speaking that likes that, loose definitions. Yep. Are there more Dunkin' Donuts locations or Pizza Huts? What's your guess? Dunkin'. Yeah, Dunkin'. Right. Of the pizza chains, what do you think are the top three? Domino's. Yep. Pizza Hut. And this next one, I think there's one left in the country, but it's the only one I can think of. Little Caesars. No, Upset City. Uh, Little Caesars is still holding strong at three. So Domino's and Pizza Hut have basically the exact same number of restaurants. They're uh, off by 12, and we're talking about 60 uh, or 6,500 restaurants. So basically the exact same. They're neck and neck. I thought Little Caesars had effectively died off, and I was sad about that. They still have 4,000 locations. Wow, I did too. And this is why a couple days ago, I was talking to my wife, and I said, if you had to have your uh, like arena named after any of these different brands, which one do you think would be most likely to die off? FTX, Crypto.com, Little Caesars. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a. Pr- I I thought they were all kind of on equal footing, but apparently, apparently not. Yeah, Little Caesars, they're they're they've upped their ad budget now. Have you seen that commercial with Matthew Stafford where he's, he says like I'm not a sellout, and then he turns around and has the jersey that says Pizza Pizza on it? So good. I've not. I have seen the one that says gluten free pizza is usually disgusting, but ours isn't, and like that's the proof. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, how how I'm gonna take your word for it, Little Caesars, Pizza Pizza? I can't. I can't even. I can't even. Uh, long story short, number two burger chain is Burger King. They have about 7,000 locations. That matches Taco Bell, basically. Of the chicken joints, KFC actually still has more locations than Chick-fil-A, which boggles my mind. I can tell you the profitability of those KFC locations is nothing compared to the profitability of those Chick-fil-A. Locations. Unless they're sharing costs with Taco Bell. Ooh, yeah. Maybe. See? So Chipotle's got about 3000 locations. You'll probably get fired up calling Chipotle non a fast food joint, but uh, interesting stuff. I love this stuff. It's a nice sanity check for your brain to it is. Uh, do some thought here. That it is. You know what else is a sanity check for your brain? What? Economics. So I'm going to turn us into the world of economics here. Reach into that good old fishbowl. There was this piece in Asterix magazine called Why Isn't the Whole World Rich? Now, this piece isn't talking about people so much as it's talking about countries. Like, why can't every nation be able to to grow quickly economically? And what it says, it says a few things. One is that the world is becoming less poor. And even in, in with some recent data. So in 2019, according to this, there were about 648 million people living in extreme poverty living on about $2.15 per day. That was 8.4% of the world population. So this is three years ago. Now, if you go back to 1990, it's saying that about 36% of people lived at, at that on that amount of money. Now, that's not taking into account inflation and stuff, but still, I think directionally what it's saying is the world is becoming less impoverished. So generally speaking, thumbs up, right? Good stuff. Yeah, I mean, I just want to, pause and talk about how great that is there there is typically if you look at the historical trends we've talked about books like factfulness and others that show how positive the direction is over the course of 
30 plus years, things are getting better and that's worth celebrating. Yep, it definitely is. And so where it takes this, it says, generally speaking, right, the world's becoming less impoverished. And there's some countries that have been able to move their people out of poverty at a much faster rate than others. And the question behind this piece is why? Like, why is that? And why can't everyone else do it? The sucky thing is that by the end of this piece, it basically gets to the point where it says, like, we don't know. But we have a couple ideas, right? Yeah. It, it goes into some economics papers that have tried to explore this. It's like this, this question that cannot be answered. And a couple examples that it provides of countries that have been able to do it are South Korea and Taiwan. Some of the papers it looked at were both uh, like broad ranging papers that look over a hundred different countries and try and figure out um, how how countries were able to do this and some weren't. And some that looked at just a select few like South Korea and Taiwan and compared them to others. And so it, it tried to kind of weave weave in some of the learnings from each of them to figure out directionally how some countries are able to do this. Let me give you a couple facts on when I'm talking about moving out of poverty, what that means. So in 1960, the GDP per capita in South Korea, was about $1,200, which was lower at the time than Bangladesh, Nigeria, and Bolivia, and about 6% of the GDP per capita in the United States. 6% 2020, so 60 years later, GDP per capita in South Korea was nearly equal to that the UK. So it's saying in that 60-year period, South Korea goes from 6% of the United States and close to like Bangladesh to the United Kingdom right? Great Britain, England, the three lions, right? I'm just bringing a little World Cup action in there. And the UK is not England, so I kind of messed that up. But anyway, <laughs> but regardless, that's pretty, that's pretty amazing, right? And where it's saying, if you look at current rates of growth for many of the other impoverished countries in the world, they would take 700 years to catch up to where the US is today. That is a stark yep. contrast. So what, 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 what can we learn from this? And what can we do? Well, first of all, and you know this, but and I understand why they did it, but extrapolating at extrapolating a current trend over seven hundred years is about the dumbest thing you could ever do. The only guarantee is that it's not going to stay the same as it is for the next seven hundred years, which is what you're going to talk about, I'm sure. No, yeah, that that is that is very true, but it's just it's just trying to show orders of magnitude, right? Provides that context, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so as I as I mentioned before. Through all the research, all the papers they put out there, they're trying to say, like, what are specific, tangible pieces of, of evidence that we can get to? And, like, there really, there isn't anything that sticks. But directionally, there were a couple things, and I think these couple things are pretty interesting. The two things are namely that what matters is the distribution of political power across a country and the distribution of economic power across a country. Is there a component of this? Because uh, I thought one of the core tenets here was going to be uh, rules and regulations and and the ability to follow the rule of law. Does that fall into either of those categories? Um, they brought some of that up during the piece, but it didn't really fall into those categories. Per okay, se. I mean, is this is that just a foundational piece, right? If the cartels run your country. And therefore, you can't collect tax, and therefore, you can't build economic foundations for people to build growth engines on top of. You almost never get to square one to let the growth take off. Well, it's more so, it's like how they would run it, more so than that they are running it. Because like, if, if the cartel worked such that they distributed wealth around the, the country, 
which right then it would be fine if it was like the if cartel was made up of a bunch of robin hoods right then like that that works and so absolutely but yeah have you is there an example of that yeah we'll talk about that in a future episode the answer no the answer is no is why i just said that i just punted that full that full thing no there aren't but i but i think the point was mostly that it's not about it's not like a specific type of system necessarily that can that can kind of like fully work um it's more of what that system does although the distribution of political power does have very strong correlation to like a democratized system right if you have yes, yes like generally speaking and so but i thought this was really interesting and it also tied into there's a book that i uh read recently called the economist sour have you read that one no it's if you are an economic nerd out there it's it's an interesting one it talks about the rise of uh, economists the power of economists and the influence of economists over the last 40 50 years ish or so uh because there was so there's a period where no one listened to economists they're basically a bunch of nonsense um is what everyone said and then there came this How period where people back started to that listening. period I'd like yeah to i know I'd like for real for really dull for really dull uh and so people started listening to economists so like it, it talks about um economists in the u.s and also outside of but anyway the reason why i tied to this is because it brought up like a pretty similar point but in the, but they were talking about uh chile was the example and they were looking at the difference between what's happened in Chile over like the last 60 years and what happened in Taiwan over the last 60 years. And Chile down in South America is a country that has lots of natural resources, lots of minerals, right? All like it, it has so much of what you could say, this yeah. is a country that Beautiful should. Country. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but Taiwan outpaced them significantly, right? When it came to economic growth. And so like, why is that? And one of the things they came down to was um, when you look at places that where people might have large swaths of land, which they call, I'm not a big fan of this word, but they call plantations. They're like, it's more of you have like plantation land ownership, that's disadvantageous to having homestead land ownership. So if you take a bunch of those big swaths of land and actually split them up amongst the people, then you're more likely to have strong economic growth. And I think it makes a lot of sense. Like to me, I'm, this is, I'm getting past the article and past what they said in the book, but to me, it makes a lot of sense because when you start to give people power, they start to take more agency. They start to push further in their lives. They think about their own productivity. They see a possibility for them to be, to have like a quote unquote seat at the table, right? And have their own futures. And therefore they, they push harder. Makes sense to me. Yeah. I mean, there's a capitalism component to that, right? Oh, okay. He used the C word. Keep going. No, one of the reasons that capitalism has proven to be the most successful I don't think this is uh, debatable, but maybe it is. You'll tell me, I'm sure. Um, the capitalism has proven to be the most successful and currently stable governing, governing system is because you allow people to take control of their own destiny and you take how they're hardwired to strive for more and build that as a core component of how your country functions. Yes, and with uh, with the limits, though, Right. Because we've talked a good amount here around inequality and how inequality and democracy, like at some point, really start to diverge if things become so unequal. I think that it when you push capitalism to the point where a lot of people are benefiting from it. Or sorry, a few people are benefiting from it. A lot of people aren't. Then it starts to break. So it's like yes. it, it's a balance, I think, is like is kind of the point where. So and when that leads to when you have the system that leads to a bunch of inequality economically that then leads to a bunch of 
inequality politically. You've broken both of these points that this this article is kind of saying. Absolutely agree with that because it's no longer. Yeah, you articulated that well, right? When it when that structure only works for a few rather than the majority of people, then you lose the balance that I just talked about where people feel like they actually can control their own destiny. The American dream actually exists for me. It's not something that we used to talk about that used to be available to folks in the 1950s. That will break your society quickly. Yeah, I, I thought that this was a cool, pretty cool, uh, cool in the Dougal's coolness, not cool as with like really Justin Bieber or whatever would use it. I see still cool. I don't know, but no. cool. No. Okay. Well, th- that just shows you again, how cool I am. The, I thought this was like a really good summary of research that's been done in this field and like, uh, and what that might mean for us. So go out and we'll put this on the Substack, of course, on Monday, but go out and read this. Why isn't the whole world rich in Asterix magazine? All right. What you got in the bowl? Well, you talked about Chile. Now I have to give some shout outs to a guy in Pucon, uh, Airbnb. I stayed at a while back. That guy is awesome, but I wish I could remember his name. Speaking of shout outs, shout out to Emma Grace, new edition. Uh, I'm sure she's a fan of the show and I'm super excited that she's here. Okay. I'm going to continue on the quiz theme and we are going to talk similarly about the popularity of different industries just after covid and today because define popularity define popularity i mean uh the change in like retail traffic or so some of these are delivery services so retail traffic is the wrong word but like consumerism like consumer trends like like number of orders basically okay cool 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 so the simplest one that i think you'll nail is restaurant delivery what was the peak just after covid in terms of how many X or how what percentage it increased and where does it sit today? I would say it was three times COVID and now it's 20% below pre-COVID. Went up 130% and now it's still up 12%. So restaurant delivery had this huge spike and then it is it appears that it's kind of stuck around and will maybe continue to be more popular. This one surprised me like crazy. Grocery delivery. Oh, well, I mean, at some point, that went up. That's a lot, by the way. That's a translation for a lot. Went up 100%. And then today is the interesting piece. So today, down 50%. No, it's it's steady. It's up 2%. What? So I thought... Wait, gro- uh, grocery- up, up 2%. Yeah. So up 2% from pre-COVID? From pre-COVID norms. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. So I thought grocery delivery had like we'd turn the corner at you see everyone advertise it now. And I thought that it was here to stay. You know, I expected it to be like 20 to 30% greater. Because pre COVID, had you ever even heard of grocery delivery? Yeah, we like use it a all the little time. bit with Instacart and stuff. Oh, I use it all the time. Well, you're cutting edge, I guess. That's right. right. Bieber meal meal kits, right? Meal kits obviously spiked during COVID. I'll, I'll break it to you, not to the level of restaurant delivery or anything. But where do meal sits meal kits sit today? I'd say it went went up fifty percent. Now it's up six percent. Went up twenty seven percent. Now it's up forty five percent. Whoa! Meal kits so, might so have higher power. It it's might have higher. sticking power. Yeah. But the the crazy thing is, I think a lot of the meal kits people still are on that those promos. So I don't know if meal kits will be here in two years. So, so that's they're not they're not making money. It's volume, but not 
not money that's, making. Probably. That's my speculation. Like I haven't seen any of those businesses on the like looked at a 10k and been like, "Ooh, this is great business that I want to invest in." But that's a different story. All right, Jim's right after COVID did what? Jim Carmer is that what we're talking about? <laughs> no, I could place some workout. Oh, okay, an athletic facility. So, well, during during COVID, I think they got hit. I'd say how like bad? Down thirty percent. Down eighty five percent. Whoa, whoa! So there's like one dude doing a squat. Oh, I, I mean, a lot of them were required to be shut down by law. So yeah. Okay. Now, now I think they're probably they're. I'd say they're pretty even down 10%. Still down 30%. Whoa. Okay. Is that fascinating? Okay. Wow. Yeah. I'll, I'll fly through a couple of these. I don't want to take up too much time. At home fitness went up 42% at the peak of COVID. Now it's up 1%. I mean, it just reverted to the mean. It, no, I don't think the long term trend in at home fit, fitness ever changes, but that's me personally. We, we are we're social apparel. animals. We're social animals. Yeah, we are. Yeah. In-store apparel went down 97%. This is like basically, it, yeah, like that. If yeah. you needed, if you really needed clothes, which no one needed clothes during COVID because you're locked in your house. But if you really needed clothes, you had them delivered. And now it's uh, down 2%, basically what it was before. And near and dear to your heart, I think, is movie theaters down 99%. Yeah, I was going to say 100. Yeah. Uh, well, there's probably some place like, somewhere that wanted to continue to show movies i maybe you can't do down 100 because i i would anyway yeah um, if it counts today, uh like like drive-ins oh good point see there we yeah. go there you go that's that's the one today it's only down six percent to be honest i thought it would continue i thought it'd be more in the 30 percent range like i didn't think movie theaters were back but apparently they're pretty much doing pre-covid volumes i mean we're having movies breaking records this year True. Very true. Okay. Sit down restaurants started down 83%, currently up 9%. So people, that social animal thing is my hypothesis with this. Okay. What about stand-up restaurants? <laughs> the last one. Air travel went down 92%. It's currently up 5%. Wow. It's fascinating to see like what just came back to so-called normal and what appears to have some sticking power, right? Well, what's also interesting there with that last one on the airlines, I'm going to tie this back to something else you brought up before. So airlines, if if they're up 5%, and I'm taking this as just volume, if that's up 5%, prices, I mean, I'm this is this is no data, but like prices are up like 20% or something like that. Like prices are definitely up. And I think back to what you what you sent over to me about the profitability of airlines like seven years ago. And I'm curious yeah. as to what that's going to look like in a couple of years. If people are flying more and prices are also a little bit higher. I mean, fuel isn't fuels getting back to normalcy, uh, I think. Right. I don't know. Maybe not. I mean, I think that is I'm going to call you out. I think that is a no data take. You said it, but then you make conclusions on it. I was on an airplane this week. My flight and I booked flights within the past two weeks. It's super cheap. I I'm jumping on an airplane tomorrow. It was also super cheap. I just booked tickets to Hawaii at a very affordable price. So like, I haven't uh, seen there any, was a peak there. I haven't seen any prices that are like that. Where are you? What are you flying? <laughs> There's a special value investor forum where it's just like that you hang on the wing of the aircraft uh, <laughs> to save a few bucks. <laughs> so <laughs> doesn't you know surprise me. me. Doesn't surprise <laughs> me. 
All right. I want to I want to keep moving and I need your thoughts on this quote. I'm going to do this a couple times with you. All right. So I need your thoughts on this. This is from Lori Santos. Santos, excuse me. A dumb thing are about our minds is that we never look to reference points that make us feel good. We always look to reference points that make us feel crappy. Untrue. Talk to me about it. Uh, first of all, I don't believe in nevers and always. Okay, fine. Revise it a little bit so it says most commonly, because that's a fair point. Yeah, yeah. I do I do see the point behind this. It's a, even if you go back to like Instagram, right? And people looking at evidence of people having other people having amazing lives, which doesn't make you necessarily feel any better. The first thing that came to mind for me though is confirmation bias, which we've talked about a whole bunch. And confirmation bias is basically you finding information that makes you feel like your belief system is upheld. So to me, that's a reference point that makes you feel better. And I think that's pretty prevalent. Yeah. So, okay. First of all, let me just tell folks that Lori is the host of the Happiest Lab podcast. So she focuses on like studying happiness and she also teaches at Yale. The thing I loved about this quote is... um I think there's more truth to it than you're give the than you're like there's right there this isn't a 100 percent of the time thing but i think there's a lot of truth to this i think if you think evolutionally or at least i've heard people make this argument i'm not sure that i fully believe this argument you say your brain is hardwired to naturally fear the rhinoceros that's going to kill you etc cetera, etc cetera, right so you remember these negative events in a for a survival technique and then i've heard people make the argument that because you're hardwired that way when you go to a situation where you're not dealing with those like hunting gathering danger situations you might focus on the negative of an interaction with your boss or focus on the negative of a you know a day-to-day -day interaction with uh life in a way that's not as healthy for you because you still have that hardwired hunter-gather mentality does that make any sense to you? No, I, I think it, I think there's truth to it, certainly. And as you've heard me say a few times, I think people often do what's in their worst interest, which I think is related to this whole point. It mm -hmm. probably there's probably something where you need to categorize like the areas and people there. There are probably many categories at which people look for reference points that make them feel worse. But then there are some like maybe I'm trying to figure out what the the belief system piece is, because I think when it does come to belief systems, people try and reaffirm themselves so maybe it's like within identity you look well, for reference but, points that make you feel better what you're saying there i disagree with when you, when you started down the confirmation bias and everything track like there's a lot of things where i it's natural for me to use confirmation bias but a lot of times that's my brain protecting my beliefs because i don't want to be wrong and i say i here i don't mean that i mean like the human brain does yeah. not want to think yeah, about the I'm fact saying. that you could have been wrong for 20 years. But that's not necessarily going to a reference point that makes us feel good. That's just not wanting to uh, question bad. that long belief. Well, yeah, I think you're playing, you're playing double Dutch with words right now. Okay. I was, I was thinking of but I hear you. from the lens of happiness rather yeah, 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 than yeah, the yeah. lens of long-held beliefs and how it's not fun to change. Yeah your mind on those things. Yeah, I, I think that identity is central to happiness. 
and belief systems are pretty central to overall happiness. But now I, I get your point. I don't want to, I don't want to take too much. I've already probably done this, but take too much away from like the overarching theme. I do believe the core of what this is saying is that people do find reference points that kind of like, if you look at um, an equation, right. That I throw out sometimes is happiness equals expectations minus reality. I think yeah. that people often do look at points of expectation that sets their expectations way too high. And therefore, when the reality hits, lower happiness. All right, here's another one. I don't know if I agree with it or not. Makes uh -oh. me think, though. This is from Andrew Wilkerson, who I think is a, a VC guy. It says, uh, most people successfully, mo sorry, most successful people are just a walking anxiety disorder harnessed for productivity. I think it's a strong statement with some truth behind it. I think a walking anxiety disorder it's probably pretty aggressive, but I do think that productive paranoia is a real thing. Yes. And so if that's really what they're trying to get at here, then I can believe it. But I think walking anxiety disorder is just like really negative about humanity. You na you nailed it. Um, I, I think the, the, th I like that this kind of makes you think, but the, um, this is too harsh. As a society, we often celebrate like the the best in the field, the richest person, you know, the the best investor ever. And sometimes those folks are also the most eccentric and maybe the the person that has chosen to make a lot of sacrifices to be number one in whatever field that is. Let's talk about sports because it's easier, right? Michael Jordan is clearly the best basketball player of a generation. Does that mean that I should model my life after Michael Jordan? I'd argue probably not. One, because I never have the basketball talent to be anywhere near him. But two, because I think he sacrificed so much of the rest of his life to be the best basketball player he could be. So that's yeah. the thing I like about this quote is kind of like when you're admiring or maybe modeling your life after a hero, make sure you understand all the sacrifices that that hero may have made to get to the pinnacle of that plateau, you know, that yeah. mountain yeah. that they climbed. Yeah. Yeah, it is. A, it's thought provoking. Definitely thought provoking. All right. Back to your fishbowl. I want to kick over to some listener mail. Do Love you have it. anything before listener mail? Uh, let's do listener mail and I might throw in one thing at the end. That's fine. Okay. All right. So as always, let's hit that track. Okay, we got two pieces. We got two pieces of listener mail here today. One, dare I say, is legit mail. Like, I'm talking snail mail, put the stamps on it. It flows to your home physically. Wait, this is impressive because we haven't given away the mailing address for the pot. So. I, I know, but this person had it because they're Mama Dougals. So <laughs> shout out, shout out. My mother sent me a piece of physical mail, opened this piece of physical mail, and inside was a pair of shorts with a GameStop logo on one side and a rocket ship on the other. Can you please explain? <laughs> this is unexplainable. No, I can't explain. Apparently, the hyenas in the streets when Dougal's uses the Lion King reference here. And let me give some background on that if you're new to the show. 
sometimes we talk about the herds of people making poor investment decisions because the price of an asset is going up and for no other reason like there's no fundamentals behind when GameStop was hot right so these hyenas in the streets that bought the thing without understanding that they were speculating at best and certainly not investing started this almost cult I this is not in a bad way but I don't know how else to describe it this cult of people that would support the company AMC is another one of these, and it sounds like AMC's CEO is on their way out and other things are happening, which we'll talk about in a future episode. But so, of course, these people got really excited about GameStop as an investment and wanted to create like a society around it. So the natural thing to do, Dougals, which I didn't know was around, but it's to make some shorts with a rocket ship on them. Like, does this make perfect sense to you? It does. It does. And I, I just loved that my mom sent me a pair of these. So thank you, mom. <laughs> Appreciate it. It was it it brought me a lot of joy in opening up that package and seeing that. And I was also just confused because I did not expect GameStop merch to be coming in the mail. So right. it's great because I think this means you need to be a shareholder. It's really the only option. Le- leverage the house, take out a second mortgage, and buy GameStop options. This is—it's really the only choice. Back in the height of this madness, I bet I mentioned to you, but I don't think I said it on the pod. Uh, I could drive on my local interstate, and there were handmade signs that said, "Like buy GME." No, there were not. There were actually on the interstate overpass. There was one, maybe two. But right at the height of the mania, people were so enthused about the prospects of this company that they went out and made billboards and put it on the interstate. And now you're part of that crew, Dougals. This is great. Yeah, I'm part of the interstate, interstate mafia. I'm loving it. Okay, second <laughs> piece. Good. Second piece. This one came electronically through at the uh, skippydougals at gmail.com email address. Please hit that up for future listener mail. This one came from John. And John played off the fact that we've been playing off of Jim Cramer a little bit recently, right? There's an episode that was saying that the that Jim Cramer is the Peloton, or Peloton is the Jim Cramer of companies, I think that's what it was. But anyway, yeah. there's anyway. So Jim Cramer came out this week talking about the Dow. So for those that do not know, the Dow is down something like five, six percent, something like that this year. S&P 500 is down like 15, 16%, somewhere around there. And NASDAQ is down like high 20s, right? So the Dow doing better this year, right, than, than a couple of the other major indices. And Jim Cramer decided a couple things. One, the overarching reason that the Dow is performing the best this year is because it's full of, quote, old-fashioned profitable businesses that return cash to shareholders. This blew my mind. Never before had I thought that a profitable business that returns cash to shareholders might produce significant returns. Huh? Exactly. You messing with me here? No, I guess I'm absolutely messing with you. (laughs) I was just like, what? What? Okay. And then hold on. No, 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 no. Hold on. Hold on. So that was, that was, that's the first point. That's the first point where I was just like, somebody give this person a vacation so they don't have to talk every day. This was the first thing I thought. Second thing though, this this is where I just went, are you being serious right now? He then came out and said, what drove their movements is critical when examining how stocks have fared this year. And referring back to this Dow versus S&P 500 versus NASDAQ point, I think this is the most important story of 2022. 
Jim Cramer said this. Yes. I think the most important story of 2022 was when Jim Cramer said Zuckerberg was incredible and Meta's stock was going to outperform. Or maybe when he said that Sam Brankman fried was uh, the next Warren Buffett or whatever he said. Should yes. we go on? Uh, no, we we should. We I I probably already given this too much airtime, but the most important story of 2022. I agree. I think when Jim Cramer started crying because of his Meta mistake <laughs> endorsement. Yeah, this is a period. I, think about all the things that have happened in 2022. All the stories like we've discussed, even not even in 2022. In the last like three weeks, the stuff that we've talked about. And you're going to tell me that the Dow. The fact, the fact that you're saying that old-fashioned profitable companies that return cash in the Dow is the most important story of 2022, Jim, Jim, like you I said, Jims were down 99% during COVID, including Jim Cramer. <laughs> no, I, I, oh, I think it's unfair to hit. Basically, I say dumb stuff. And probably the more I had, if I had to fill an hour of content each day, I'd probably say more dumb stuff. I think Jim Cramer is a nice dude. I also think he's a smart dude. That being said, I don't think you should follow his stock picks. And that if you want to do anything with Jim Cramer's stock picks, you should find that thing that shorts his stock picks and buy that ETF. <laughs> but I feel like, I feel like we're a little unfair to him. I don't know. I don't want to throw too much shade his way. It's all fun and games to me. Okay, but there is a larger point here. It, like, effectively, the, what's happening with performance this year is blue chips, which you could kind of say the Dow is like more of blue chips, like long-established profitable companies historically. And it's more like 30 companies instead of 500 companies. In a time of economic turmoil, those should... You know, I say outperforming quotes here because when you're all losing money, that's a funny type of outperformance. But yes, like dividend growth stocks typically outperform in times of economic turmoil. Blue chips typically outperform in times of economic turmoil. This is like an established almost fact. This is not the biggest story of the year. Exactly. Yeah? Okay, there we go. Yeah. All right. I am going to throw in one more thing. We've debated... Us and others have done these endless debates around what inflation means to stock market valuations. We'll put this out on the Twitter. It's a table, so it's hard to talk to on the pod, but it's really important to like slam the door with some facts on this instead of speculating, which so many people have done. So this analysis is from Lizanne Saunders, and it takes the CPI on a year-over-year -year basis, so like the change in CPI. And then it basically tells you what the average price-to-earnings ratio is in those inflationary environments. But what it also does is tells you how common those inflationary environments are. So in a simple example of this is when the year-over-year -year, uh, change in CPI is negative, that only happens 1% of the time. And your average price to earnings ratio in that situation is about 16. Let me give you the more typical example. Basically, 75% of the time, the consumer price index is between 0 and 6%. And when the consumer price index is between 0 and 6%, the average price to earnings ratio for the S&P 500 is around uh, 17. 
Okay. So that's your common baseline scenario. Okay. Everyone's fairly comfortable with that. That happens okay. 75% of the time. What happens is when CPI goes to eight to 10%, which is kind of where it has been recently, that is an event. That's an inflationary event that only happens 3% of the time. So first of all, you know that it's pretty rare. And when you're in an inflationary environment like that, the average price to earnings ratio of the S&P 500 is 11, right? So this tells you, based on historical data, how your market valuations change as uh, inflation changes, right? You went from this baseline, 75% of the time, you're at a fairly low inflation rate. Your average PE is around 17. Inflation jumps, your stock market valuations come down, and your average PE is around 11. I believe, I believe those facts. It's just, I'm going to get this a little bit wrong here. Maybe you have the data in front of you. But when inflation has hit this, it's happened. It's been like World War One, and the Spanish flu, World War Two, the 1970s, yes. and now. So, I, I mean, it's first of all, it's been 50 years. <laughs> like, and so there's so much else that's different for, we've even talked about like accounting practices. I, it's hard for me to. To say I, historically, I think yeah. No, I think that's all fair, but you can take two approaches here. One, you can say, yeah, that pr basically never happened, so I'm going to fly blind. Like, I'm just not going to look at the data. Or you can say, yeah, I have a, a really small sample, but I'm still going to do the historical. Like, and that's why I mentioned 75% of the time you're at the baseline. Well, that only happens 3% of the time. Um, Dougals, there's an, another example in here where when CPI is over 12, this only happens 2% of the time. Like this is the worst of the worst case. And in that case, your price to earnings ratio on average is eight. The point here, the, the high level takeaway for me is like, of course, when inflation goes up, that means that your risk-free rate also goes up, which means stocks have to offer a better return than sitting in a savings account or sitting in government CDs. And therefore their valuation has to come down to accommodate. It's just people making smart decisions about how they invest. And it makes sense that there's a push and pull with average yeah. valuation metrics. Yeah. And the, the mathematical version of what you, it's exactly what you just said, but if you put that into math and you look at the discounted cash flows, like the current value of discounted cash flows. Yes. Right. Your your discount rate goes up. Yes. And this occurs as well. So therefore current valuations are lower. The uh the optimistic long-term view, which I'm gonna this is huge extrapolation, but I'm gonna throw out there too, based on what you were saying, is that would also mean that at peak inflation times is the best time to get into the market. Absolutely. Well, maybe not the best, but the, it's a good time because it's a good time. Because valuations are lower and because, oh, there's, it's so complex. I don't want to like make too many leaps of faith, but I think you'll get what I'm saying here. You are often in a recession because inflation's that high. Uh, you're often in a rising rate environment. You often have businesses struggling. It's all these, it's like the perfect storm of valuations yeah. are low and therefore you make a decent long-term so return. So I, I just, I just pulled up one N of one situation here, which is the most fun to look at. So we've talked yeah. about this period of 1966 to 1981 or so, something like that, right? 
like stagnant stock prices. Like we've talked about that period. When inflation was wildest during that time, right, was like the late 70s, early 80s time period. That's when it got real, real high. And if you look at, I just pulled up the S&P 500, just looking at price, not dividends or anything, looking at price from January of 1975 to what is this? Basically January of 1981. So like that period where inflation was the highest, the S&P 500 just on a price basis was up 110%. All right. Only Dougals can get can take my data, which it goes back a hundred years and say, oh, well, that only happens three percent of the time. And then get this N of one example where he's which like, is one oh, of but but it's, it's one of it's one of your three percent. This is during one of your three percent. Yeah, but I should say my my three percent is a better bigger data set than your one time. Yeah, you're right. It is it's three times larger. No, I'm just uh, I'm just joking around. I was just saying that uh, it's part of this also has to do with expectations, right? Because the difference was if you go and take this directionally, one difference here in this N of one was you had inflation that was higher in those early 80s, like when Vol Volcker was like started really bringing down the hammer. In those early 80s, inflation was higher, but expectations were lower. like pessimism was so low. <laughs> like when you go a little bit earlier. So I think your your broad point, I think, is a pretty good one. Um, and I just like to play around. All right. One last thing to wrap, because um, yep. this made me chuckle this week. The IRS has asked people to report their Venmo and PayPal uh, payments over 600 bucks, basically targeting, you know, like whether it's the barbershop or whatever that has moved their operation to an electronic payment system, even though it's just cash. They they really want that money. And the tweet that I'm still laughing about is comparing and contrasting that to Sam Bankman Freed, who effectively stole $10 billion, but managed to give away hundreds of millions to our politicians. And it, I don't know if this is 100% true, but I saw some speculation this week that he actually gave equally to both parties. He just disguised what was visible to the public or not. Uh, the thought being... He just wanted power, right? He's giving away large sum of money to get power. And is it weird, Douglas, that he's still not like formally arrested or anything? I mean, he's just still hanging out in the Bahamas, correct? No, I mean, look, I'm taking what he's saying at face value. He was just an ignorant child, didn't know what he was doing. And he can attribute a bunch of these to, and I quote, F ups. I, I can't tell That's how sarcastic true. you are. I'm being right very now. sarcastic. I mean, like, I haven't followed the media tour because I'm not too interested in it because uh, there's so much real harm that was done. Uh, but I don't know. It's weird that it's weird that like Madoff was in jail, whatever, the next day. And I think he's still yeah. hanging out in the Bahamas doing guest appearances via Zoom. Yeah, I don't know if it's like an extradition thing or something. I don't know. But I agree. We should go down and get him. No, we I'm should good. do a live Skippy and Dougal show on the front yard of our good friend Sam. <laughs> that has to be video. This is a great idea. <laughs> yeah, that's a great I idea. I like that. All right, guys. Episode 101 in the books. Thanks again to new premium subscribers. That promo's still going. So hit skippydougals.supercast.com. One more uh, week. You got one more week for the promo. One more week. Jump in. Uh, we love new subscribers. Uh, always rate and review the podcast. Share it with a friend. Please say, I can't believe these guys made it to 101 episodes and uh, go from there. And then hit us with listener mail, 
skippydougals at gmail.com. Thank you. Thanks, guys.